All right. Um, just got to say, glad you guys are here. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in 4. We'll make our way into chapter 5 tonight. Um, as you guys uh, make your way there, let me, uh, let me open us up in prayer before we, before we read this. Dear God, I want to take uh, a moment again to thank you for your word and the chance to read it in your church um, with your people. And uh, Lord, my prayer, is, uh, my prayer is for you to speak to us tonight. And my prayer is for you, uh, for you to uh, help us taste and see that you're good. And, and to experience that in your word, um, for you to increase our love for you through the reading of this, and give us a greater, uh, give us a greater hope tonight um, in a way that the world just can't know. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. First Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13 tonight. Uh, for... Much of this letter, pretty much almost all of this letter, Paul has been commending this church for all the stuff that they already know. And you'll see this writing in there a lot. You already know, brothers and sisters, or you have no need for me to write to you, brothers and sisters, about. Um, because he says you're doing it. He says at the beginning, you know the way that we lived, and you have gone and imitated us in your lives. And then later he says that you know that we were called to suffer. We told you this, and you have done that well. You have suffered, um, experienced hardship with joy, and remained faithful. Last week we saw him say, you know what it looks like to please God. To please God, it's God's will that you would be holy. And he, he defines that specifically in that context as abstaining from sexual immorality. We talked for a while about that. Um, last week. And then he also says, and, and about brotherly love, we don't need to tell you anymore because you already know this and you're doing it. I just want to encourage you to do it more and more. And so throughout this letter, Paul has said, you know, you know, you know, and now we finally get to something that they don't know. We get to something that they don't seem to have a grasp on. And, and that thing is what happens to our brothers and sisters after they die? Um, and you could actually see how this might happen. Um, during Paul's stay with them, it, it was actually fairly brief. From, from what we know, it could have been anywhere as small as three weeks. Um, it could have been up to a few months, something like that. He wasn't there very long. And so it would actually make sense that they've never actually had to ask the question, what happens when a Christian dies when Paul was there? More than likely, none of them died during his time there. And so, so they never had to wonder what happens. And, and there's, there's a really good chance that Paul even touched on it some while he's teaching there. He seems to have taught them a lot of things. And so uh, I, there's a pretty good chance that he touched on it. But it, it may not have come to the forefront of their minds very often. And so they didn't have to wrestle with this. But since he's left, they have. Uh, since he's left, it appears that some have died. And, and in light of what we know about the situation in Thessalonica, the intense persecution, it's, it's very likely that they weren't just dying of old age, um, that they were people dying perhaps due to the persecution that was taking place amongst them. People who were dying um, before they were supposed to. Um, and, and you can imagine uh, the heartache that would, that would kind of be in a person's mind when they are 
not only experiencing the loss of someone they love early on in life, but not knowing what's going to happen. Now, we do know this, and we're going to find this out later tonight. They know that Jesus is coming back. They know that they are waiting for Jesus to return. And they know that when Jesus comes, He's going to bring His people to be with Him. The question that they're wondering, it seems, is, yeah, but if somebody dies before Jesus gets here, what happens? Do they still get to go with Him? Or do we have to laugh? Because the early, the church in the first century, they actually had a pretty strong anticipation that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetimes. And so the, the we all know when He comes back, we get to go with Him. The question is, what, what happens to those of us who don't make it that long? And, and they seem to be wrestling with this, and, and, and I imagine at least hurting deeply because of it. And so Paul writes to them, um, and I just want to read to you, there's two sections that we're going through. I want to read the first section to you all the way through, starting in verse 13. It says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Now catch that again, it's... So far it's been, we don't have to tell you about this, we don't have to tell you about this, you know this, and now he changed this. But this thing, this thing I don't want you to be uninformed about, because I, I fear that you are. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now we're going to take a little bit to kind of jump in and tackle this uh, verse by verse. Um, Bo, do you want to read for me? Um, can you read verses 13 through 14, starting back there at the top? Alright, so he uses this phrase multiple times here. We don't want you to be ignorant about or uninformed about those who have fallen asleep. Now, this word asleep is uh, a euphemism for those who have died, and, and it's not just a Christian thing. Actually, it had been used in this culture at least as far back as Homer in uh, 725-ish B.C. when he wrote the Iliad, he actually used this phrase. So we know that like Greeks were using this phrase, and we see that Jews were using this phrase a little bit. So this is not a uniquely Christian thing. However, in the context of this passage, it does appear that Paul may be using this, and using it so often over and over again in this, um, to stress something about the death of Christians, and that is that it is temporary in nature. And so these people who are worried what happens to them after they die, Paul, Paul it would appear, says they're asleep. And, and it's about as, um, as permanent as that, if you will. So it, it seems like he's saying this. And, and note, he tells them this. We don't want you. The reason I'm telling you this is because I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. And he doesn't say it's because we don't want you to grieve. Um, the Bible 
is, is, is full of people who, who mourn um, the loss of, of Christians, who mourn difficult times. We see when Stephen was martyred that his, his friends and companions, those who were kind of following him, like mourned his death. And it is okay to mourn. We believe as Christians, we believe that death was not God's intention. And so, so it's right and good and okay to mourn when death comes because it's not what God designed. But, Paul says, we mourn differently than the rest of the world. We don't mourn like the rest of the world who has no hope. Verse 13 is where the question is raised. Now about this issue, what happens to people who fall asleep before Jesus comes back? We don't want you to be uninformed. Verse 14 is the answer. And, and you could probably say is the dominant thought of this section. Verse, four, uh, verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. The idea is this, that because Jesus died and rose again, that those people who are in Christ, those people who are joined to Him, will do exactly what He did. That in the same way that He died and was resurrected with a new body, that the same will take place with us. And, and Paul gets into 1 Corinthians 15, he's, that, that we're not talking merely about a soul kind of coming back or some spiritual awakening, but, but that literally a physical new body will be given. And these people will come back just as Jesus came with a body. Read verses 15 through 17. All right, so it says Jesus will come and he uses these triplets again. It appears that, again, Paul seems to really like this in the book of Thessalonians, kind of packing three things together. The Lord will come with a command, with a with the shout of an archangel, and with a trumpet blast. Um, with a command that is kind of a military word. He comes in authority. He will call people to himself and they will obey and come. So it's with the shout of an archangel. Um, that word actually, this actually kind of surprised me. I, I would assume it had been in there more. That word archangel is only used twice in the Bible. Um, here and in Jude, in the book of Jude. The only time it's ever used, Jude says that the archangel himself is Michael, is who he refers to. Um, we know that in Daniel, Michael is referred to not as the archangel, but as sort of like a prince among the angels. And we do see in Daniel 12 that Michael is present um, at the resurrection, at this resurrection of a number of people. Um, that Michael is there kind of making a call. And so Paul says that with the call of the archangel, um, Jesus will come back also a trumpet blast. And trumpet blasts were often associated with the coming of God, with the presence and the announcements of His here. All the way back from the very first time when God calls His people out of Egypt and He brings them to the mountain where He's going to meet them, which we call what? Sinai, the mount where they meet him. And he says, I want you to come to the mountain and you will meet me there. And that was announced with this very loud trumpet blast when the presence of God descended on the mountain. And ever since that time, that has been kind of associated with the coming of God. Paul says that first the dead will rise and meet him and then those who are alive. So actually Paul says, you don't have to worry about your brothers and sisters who have died. They're actually going to beat you to him. 
They're going to get there first whenever Jesus comes and calls. And then he says in the end of verse 17, which is this really amazing verse, And so we will always be with the Lord. And this is the good news of Christ's return in the Bible. The really good news about um, Jesus taking our sins and us getting to um, go to heaven when we die or Jesus returning to come getting us. The, the really, really good news is, is not so much that we get to see the people we love after we die, even though that's good. It's not so much that we live forever, even though that's good. The, the thing that makes heaven amazing is not gold streets or, or the ability to do what you love or all those things. The thing that makes that so amazing, heaven so good, and the renewal of heaven and earth at the end of time is that we will be with Jesus forever. That's, that's what the Bible lifts up the most. That's the thing that, that we have the most to look forward to is to be in, um, in unity and communion with um, our Lord Jesus um, when that time comes. Verse 18, Bo. This is the only command in that section. So it's all been information. Then he gives this one imperative. So I'm telling you, in light of everything I've said, encourage one another with this thought that I just told you. That your brothers and sisters will be there and we will be called up and we will be with Him forever. Jews believed that there would one day at the end of time be a resurrection. They, they did it from everything we saw. They did not have a concept, at least any solid concept, of someone physically raising from the dead, like within history. So that whole idea of a Messiah coming back and doing that, they weren't expecting that. But they did believe that there would be at the end of time a resurrection in which all God's faithful people would raise from the grave physically, bodily raised from the grave, and they would be called back to Him, to Yahweh. Um, So they had this belief, but the Greeks did not. The Romans did not. Gentiles did not. And, and most of this church in Thessalonica is from a pagan background, from a Gentile background. There were some, um, like Plato and his followers, who believed in sort of a form of reincarnation in which you would inhabit the body of another thing or another person and retaining maybe some bits of memory of previous lives, but you would be moving into that kind of over and over and over again. There were others, um, like the Stoics, who believed that basically um, you were sort of your soul, your impersonal soul. So not so much like me, my personality, just kind of the soul, the essence of me, gets absorbed into what what they might call like the, the intelligence of the universe, the supreme intelligence of the universe. So not really a personal God, just kind of divinity at the end. Um, And then there are a number of people like the Epicureans and and a whole lot of others who just believed that this life was all there was. That there was nothing left after this. Or if there was anything, then it was kind of us wandering around in the shadow worlds after the life was over, kind of in this gloomy space, uh, space. And so you can see why Paul says those people are going to mourn differently than us. Um, because, because they've got nothing to look forward to except for a shadow world or, or my impersonal, unconscious being just being kind of absorbed back into something or this, um, the, the, the cruel fate of me having to repeat life over and over and over again in different forms. That's all they've got to look forward to, if anything, the Christian view is that we are raised again, that we retain our essential nature as who we are as human beings, and that we then dwell in fellowship with the one we long for the most. 
And, and so that's why Paul can say, yes, we mourn when somebody dies, but, but nothing like everybody else around us. It shouldn't look the same. A Christian funeral shouldn't look the same as a funeral uh, of those who aren't because, because we have a different kind of hope. Um, read, uh, let's, let's go into the next section. Actually, I'll take, a, I'll take a moment and read through that section. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. I want us to hear um, all of this. So the first question is basically what happens to those who die before Jesus comes back? Um, and, and Paul says he'll come back and he'll bring those people with him and then all of us who are still alive. The next question is how do we prepare ourselves for this event? What is it going to look like for us? And this is what Paul says. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day, and we are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So this is his next section, dealing with the coming and how we ought to prepare and how we ought to be ready for that. Bo, go ahead and read verses 1 through 3. Alright, um, so Paul says, here's actually something that you kind of have a grasp of now. He says, I don't, I don't necessarily have to write you about this, but let me refresh your memory a little bit. Maybe, let me make sure you get this. He says, you have no need of anything to write you, for you know, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That, that phrase right there, the day of the Lord, is a common one in Scripture. It comes up a handful of times in the New Testament. It comes up a lot in the Prophets. Over and over and over again, the day of the Lord is spoken of in the prophets. And in the prophets, it's pretty much never a good thing. Um, it's not something that you look forward to in the prophets, really. In fact, Amos even like chides people. Like, don't you, you're getting excited about the day of the Lord? You really shouldn't be. Um, because in the prophets, the day of the Lord, or actually it's, it, it's all caps Lord there and there, so it's the day of Yahweh. The day of Yahweh is always going to be a day of punishment. It is a day where, where God will come and right the wrongs and, and punish all those people who are in sin. The problem is that none of us are right, all of us are wrong, and all of us are in sin. He punishes His enemies, and all of us are that. And so, the day of the Lord is always something that is going to be a good and right thing, 
But it's something that is always spoken of with fear and dread in the Old Testament. And Paul says that this will come like a thief in the night. Now notice what Paul's actually done. So in the Old Testament, it reads day of the Lord, but I just told you it's actually what? Day of Yahweh. Okay. Now Paul says day of the Lord, but every time Paul uses the word Lord in his epistles, he's talking about who? Which is kind of fascinating. Paul has just taken the day of Yahweh and he calls it now the day of Jesus. Um, um, coincide pushing these two things together saying same thing same person right or same God I guess you say two persons same God Um, and so he says that this day will come like a thief in the night it will catch people off guard and this is the consistent teaching of the New Testament every time Jesus coming is talking about Jesus coming is talked about it is consistently mentioned that like people aren't going to see it coming It's going to surprise you. You can't know it exactly. Now, there are some things that are going to have to take place, the New Testament says, before this happens. So you can kind of see that, but but you're not going to be able to call it. Jesus says, I don't know the day or the hour. And so, um, for whatever reason, though, Christians have been insistent on ignoring that and trying to figure it out. Jesus didn't know, but I bet I do. Um, and throughout history, Christians have tried to make predictions about when this day will be, and not just like kind of fringe goofballs in their own little kind of cult stuff, um, but like there are, there are a lot of preachers today who like to open up the book of Revelation and then open up a newspaper and try and compare the two and say, see, it's happening, and so therefore, Jesus must be coming soon. And, and I believe that that ignores cons- the consistent teaching of Scripture, that we can't know, that we're not going to see it coming right away. Um, This is an interesting phrase that Paul uses here. I learned something today. Um, Verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. Those aren't just random words that uh, that Paul has chosen there. Peace and security um, was actually a really common slogan of the Roman Empire. Pax et securitas. Um, peace and security, and this was their major slogan. We, you ought to be grateful for us coming and conquering you, because we bring peace and security. You maybe heard the phrase Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. We bring peace and security. We bring order to a chaotic world. We bring stability, peace and security. And Paul says here, people will be calling that out and they will say, we've got everything under control and things are as they should be. Paul says, not even the mighty Rome will be able to prevent what is going to happen when the day of the Lord comes. It will surprise people and the mightiest army and the mightiest empire will not be able to hold back what is coming in that day. Um, Read verses 4 through 6. Alright, so Paul here now contrasts the believers with the unbelieving world. He says, the unbelieving world is going to be looking around and saying, peace and security, and then suddenly destruction and calamity will come on them. It will be like a thief in the night, they'll never see it coming. But he says, but you aren't going to be like that. He says, you're going to be aware, we know better, brothers. Now there are a couple confusing things that takes place in this. Um, The first thing is this, that Paul says, you won't be surprised by it like a thief in the night, which he just said, and I just said, that we will be surprised by it. 
And so that seems a little bit confusing at first, but he's not saying that they're going to know when it's going to happen. Um, He's not saying that they'll have it all figured out. What he's saying is you'll be prepared. You won't be caught off guard when it takes place because you'll be looking for it, because you'll be expecting it. So there were people who, uh, I was reading about this uh, famous admiral, he's like the first kind of commander of, of what we have as the Air Force living back um, early 1900s, I think he died in 1936, he predicted, um, apparently, he predicted like even before he died in 1936, that Japan was going to be the rising superpower in, in Asia and that eventually they would come attack the U.S. And there were other people who actually, as World War II was mounting, was saying that Japan was going to come, like they could see Pearl Harbor coming, that they're going to come bomb us now. They saw it coming, but that doesn't mean that they knew when it was going to happen. When it happened, like they, they, they were surprised by it, but, but they, they could have still said, like, let's be prepared for this. This is the idea with us as Christians. We do not know the day or the hour. We don't know exactly when he's come back. But we ought not to be caught off guard like the rest of the world because we ought to be always looking for it, always anticipating, always waiting for it. Um, the, the second thing that is a little bit confusing is Paul, I don't know if you noticed, but he's changed the meaning of the word sleep on us here. So earlier he was saying the phrase, um, those who have fallen asleep to refer to those who are dead. But now he's using sleep differently. He says, let's not be asleep, let's be awake. And and the way we know what he's actually talking about is he defines what he means by the word awake there in verse, um, what do I got there? Sorry, I'm losing my place. In verse 6, I think. Uh, Yes, let us, the very last words, keep awake, and here's what I mean by keep awake, be sober, be alert, which means when he says, when he's talking about sleep, now he's talking about people who are unaware, who are oblivious to what's about to take place, people who have let their guard down, that's that's the new meaning of sleep in this section, it's going to switch back in just a second, So, uh, so keep your eyes open to it, but this is what he's talking about now, sleeping is being unaware, awake is alert and looking for it, read verses 7 through 8, Bo. All right, so he's using a lot of light and dark and day and night contrast here. You notice in the Bible, that's not so much a phrase of like um, intellectual enlightenment. Light, those who are in the light are enlightened and they see and know things and those who are in the dark are not. In the Bible, he's talking about the difference between two realms. He's talking about the difference between two kinds of lives, between two kinds of obedience, those who are caught in darkness and those who have been, as he says in Colossians, delivered from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. And this is what he's kind of referring to as he speaks through those things. Read verses 9 through 11. All right. Um, I mentioned to you this truth that in the Old Testament, every time the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh is mentioned, that is not necessarily something to celebrate, that that is something to dread, because the day of the Lord is going to be a day of punishment and wrath. But this is kind of the interesting thing, is Paul says that that's not true for us, Um, that 
In the Old Testament, you were called by the prophets to dread the day of the Lord. In the New Testament, those who are in Christ are called to long for it, are called to look for it. It's not that anything has changed. The Bible promises us that one day all sin will be punished and the enemies of God will have His wrath poured out on them. So that's, that's promised to us. Nothing has changed about what the day of the Lord will bring. The issue, though, is that yes, all sin will be punished, but the Bible consistently teaches us that our sins, those who have placed their faith in Jesus, have already had their sins punished. That it was punished in Christ, that, that He bore our sins on the cross and therefore the wrath of God was poured on Him. This word that you see a few times in Scripture, propitiation. Christ is the propitiation, that He is the one who absorbs the wrath of God on our behalf. There will never be a sin that goes unpunished. The beautiful and amazing thing for us is that ours has already been punished. And so when Jesus comes back, there's nothing left for us to pay. And there's no more wrath for us to take. He took it on behalf of us. And that's why he says, um, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Um, and that's why Paul can say at the end of, this is uh, last verse or next to last verse in 1 Corinthians 16, Maranatha, Lord. And what that, mean, what that, that word in Aramaic means, come. Come. And that ought to be the prayer of God's people. Lord, come back. We long for it. We wait for it. Um, and then he does this. I don't know if you caught it, but this is always interesting. When you, when you read through Scripture and you catch parallel statements, in a text. But Paul ended this paragraph the exact same way that he ended the last paragraph. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And actually the phrase right before it, um, that we might live with Him, is just what he ended with. We will be with Jesus forever, so encourage one another with these, uh, with these words. And then here, we'll get to live with Him, therefore encourage one another with these words. The second coming is a big deal to Paul. Paul talks here about it for two straight paragraphs and says, I want you to, twice, I want you to think about the second coming, and I want you to use the second coming to encourage one another with those things. It is a big deal to him, especially in these letters. Actually, if, we, if we've been paying attention, if we've had our, our, our eyes on as we've been reading through, we'll see that he's actually been talking about Christ coming from the front to the back of this letter. Chapter 1, verses 10, he says that we are the people who eagerly wait for His Son from heaven. Chapter 3, verses 13, he prays that God would establish their hearts blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verse 23, we're going to get to in a little bit, says that he hopes that they will be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord. When we get into 2 Thessalonians, he's going to come up with more and more talk about the coming of the Lord and what to be looking for and what to be expecting for when it comes um, when Jesus is going to be coming back um, or what's, what to be looking for before that happens, at least. Um, and over and over and over again, he talks about this coming of the Lord. So here's the question. Why does Paul consider this so huge for this church? Why does Paul believe that one of the most important things to encourage one another and build one another up is this thought, the, that Christ will return? Um, especially in light of us, like, that doesn't sound like us very often. I don't know how, how much of my day I spend dwelling on the coming of Jesus 
and I can definitely tell you I can't remember the last time I encouraged somebody with these words that Jesus is coming back. I don't talk like that, think like that. Paul thinks that that is huge for the Christian life. And the question is, why? And the answer, Scott will give you perfectly and with no flaws in just a couple of minutes. So, uh, take, a, take a couple of minutes to stretch and uh, we'll, we'll get back to this. Alright, let us begin. Can somebody straighten that? It's bothering me. No. 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 Thank you. Yeah, no. All right. Maranatha. All right. Find a seat, find a seat. Okay, how many of you are big art fans? Yeah. Art fans, okay? Art. View art. See, I didn't grow I didn't grow up probably typical Midwest kid. I didn't grow up being exposed to much art, you know, the things that we those the thing the kind of art that I saw usually was on field trips. Not my choice, somebody else's choice. Um, but the older I get, the more I can appreciate it. I, I remember being at, um, anybody been to the Getty Museum in L.A.? You have? Yeah. Me too. <laughs> it's an awesome place. And, and if you don't like art, you can at least go there and appreciate all that there is. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Um, but the older I get, the more I appreciate it. And, and I... Specifically, because I, I start, I want to think about, like, okay, what was the artist thinking when they when they painted this or or maybe crafted this picture or whatever? What what was going through their mind? What, what were they trying to communicate? And the, the the amazing thing about art is it can evoke things that are very real. It can it can it can, it can give us a snapshot and a picture of life that that can be very powerful. It can really sum up or give us an essence of something in a very real way. The flip side of it is that, um, that because it's so specific and sometimes it's so focused on one thing, it can sometimes neglect something else. And so I want to show you a picture of some art that... So, can you guys see that? Oh, there you go. I don't. I don't know who that is. Oh, I don't know. You don't know? No. No. Don't know. So, so when you when you see this painting, it is. It's easy to, to, to know that, that the artist is, is focusing on some, an aspect of life. What are they focusing on? Pain. Pain. Suffering. Bondage. Darkness, maybe. Brokenness. Like, and, 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 you know, I don't know who, I don't know who it is. I, didn't, I just Googled dark 
paintings. Okay. <laughs> so, sorry, took me all of about five seconds to find this. Um, I don't know who it is, but, but, like whatever they're drawing from is probably real for them. And and I you know I don't know all of you guys. I know some of you fairly well, and and. Uh, I know there's enough in here that have, have experienced a kind of pain and brokenness and suffering in the world that um, that can easily, if, if we allow it to focus on, can easily just send us into a tailspin. Because um, this, what this painting fails to do is show and, and, and it, it, it neglects the, any sort of hope in this world, any sort of um, uh, freedom from bondage or... Um, light in darkness. I mean, it 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 fails to because that's not really the point, right? It emphasizes one thing, and but it as it's focusing on one thing, it it can easily neglect something else. Okay, so here's another one. That's my watch. That's not it. That's the same. This is what some of you dream about: hammocking near the ocean during a sunset. Like this, I think this is a photo, I don't think it's a painting, but it could be a painting. Um, but I saw this and I thought of you guys, because you guys always want a hammock everywhere we go. Uh, but, man, you, 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 can, you can look at this and go, wow, like that is beautiful. And, and that gives us a picture of life sometimes. Like life can be like this moment, like these kinds of moments. That it can be made up of these. And, 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 and these are awesome moments. Like, these are moments I, I believe we are to enjoy. I think these are moments that God wants us to enjoy. And ultimately, hopefully, we, we see them and we have these moments and we want to praise and worship Him for these moments. But, um, but in the same way, I could focus on this photo. I could make this my backdrop. I could stare at this all, that, all and, and think, this is where I want to be. Like, this, this is what I want to be doing all the time. Like, I, man... How nice would it be to just have this to do all day, every day, right? There, there can be this fantasy that we have when we focus on this because then it neglects something that's equally true. And actually, those that can afford to probably live and just do this might like experience this. And, and we know that to be true. Like we know that people that, that have everything they want don't have everything they want. And so, it's, it's interesting. Um, and, and I think this helps me think about the same with, with Jesus. Why did Jesus come to bring salvation? That's a question that's, that's worth asking. Why did Jesus come? And, what, and, and what, what's the point? And, and, and if, you, if you listen to people talk about why Jesus brought salvation... Um, it can go one of two directions. It can, it can often go to a, well, you know what? This is a dark world, and there's a lot of sin and brokenness, and He came to, so that we can spend eternity with Him, so that we can escape this world and escape the, 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 all the wrong, all the evil, all the, and, and we can spend eternity with Him. And there can be this focus on salvation as fire insurance, to just get me out of hell and get me to heaven. That's why Jesus came. And then, and then the other side uh, is 
Jesus came to, to change things. And He wants me to change things. And then the focus can be on all about here and now. And, 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 and it's about now. It's about what God wants to do now. It's about how He wants to change me so I can make a difference, so I can change this world now. And, and then we can, this side can fail to recognize, no, Christ is coming to restore all things. Like there's a brokenness that, that you and I can never fix. And that we need Jesus to come back for that. Um, and so, there is a theological term for this that I want to uh, give to you. We've talked about this maybe a couple years ago. If you're new uh, visiting, we, we don't like to use these words just to impress ourselves, but, but these words can actually um, give definition to something we've always sensed and felt. It may be something we've kind of wrestled with. And so the, word, the first word I want to give you is eschatology. Okay? Eschatology is eschatos is uh, the word eschatos means, means um, last, and of course ology is study of, and so it's the study of the, the last days, okay, study of the end times, the last days, study of the last days, eschatology. Um, I'll go ahead and underline the whole thing. And then put next to it, realized, realized eschatology. Okay, this, this is a theological term that deals with what we're talking about. So realized eschatology, someone who realize, has a realized eschatology is somebody who, who has a, a perspective of hope in Jesus coming that changes how they live now. Okay, this is beautiful integration. But there is a spectrum and there is extremes that I described. And so somebody who... So you can put over here, you can put under and over. So in, in, in theology, they talk about as someone who has an under-realized eschatology, okay? It's under-realized. They don't, they don't realize, they don't have a, um, it's, it's, it's an under-realized. It's the only way to say it. It's someone who has this view, simply waiting for Jesus to come back and make things Better, it's about salvation is about um, uh, getting to heaven. Not much to do with here and now. Uh, there, there's a tendency uh, with non-charismatic people to underemphasize the Spirit's power to tr- change and transform now, and it's just all about getting to heaven. That's 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 someone who with with underrealized eschatology, underrealized eschatology, and it and it's and it's about. It's all about then. It's all about future. When Christ comes, or when we go to heaven, or it's all about then. And so someone with an over-realized eschatology uh, believes that, that Jesus came to change now. And so th- this is a person who um, focuses on social justice um, with very little gospel. Or, or has a tendency to maybe overemphasize a spirit's complete transformation of now. And we'll use verses like, um, you know, by his wounds we are healed, therefore we should not, there should not be any sickness 
God would not want any sickness or any death. Like there is nothing. Like like God wants to change any, everything and, and heal everything here. And and the focus is always on the here and now, and and very little hope about His return to restore all things. And so, a per, again, a person with with with. Uh, but now, a person with, with somewhat of a, a, a right understanding is somewhere in this middle. And, and they both believe that Jesus is going to come. That, that, sorry, that when Jesus came, He, he came to bring life into, um, and have us, help us have life to the full. And that sight are going to be give, uh, given to the blind. And the oppressed will be set free. And you and I will be changed and transformed into the likeness of Christ progressively here and now. Like that, like that does happen. That Jesus came to, to affect us now. But also at the same time believing that this life is not all there is. and That, um, that there is hope. That, there, that there's a brokenness in this world that can't be fixed until He returns. And so we long for Him to return. And as we long for Him to, to return and have hope in His return... It helps us live now fully. And that's a person with a realized eschatology. And that's the way Jesus prayed. If you think about Jesus' um, his, his model prayer, he, he prays, Your kingdom come, where? On earth, as it is in heaven. Like he had this understanding that, that God's kingdom breaking through to here and now would change things but that ultimately His kingdom coming in the end would change things ultimately. Uh, Paul, if you notice in 1 Thessalonians, in, ch- in chapter 4, in our verses today, uh, 13 and 14, he says, But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, um, about those who are asleep, that you, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring him those bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So he says this to the person who's focusing on the now and saying, "He's dead. My, my friend died. My parent died. My my child died. There's no hope." And he's saying, "No, no, no. We have hope. There's life after death because Jesus conquered death. Like there's hope after death. It's not just about the now. It's there, there's hope." In Christ's return, and then, and then in <clears throat> chapter five, in verses starting in verse five, to the person who lives for heaven and is focused on that and wanting everything here to go away, he says in verse five, "For you are not, for you are children of light, children of the day, for we are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep sleep at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. Are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ, through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. It sounds a lot like what Paul says, to live is, to, is Christ, and to die is gain. Like, Paul has this understanding that, that because, we are, because we have been awoken to the darkness in this world, and Christ has 
bringing light into this darkness. He wants us to be awake and alert. And He wants us to live now with, with faith and hope and love here and now. And He wants us to encourage others to do the same. Like this is the kind of life that Paul's, that Paul's describing. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, after just this whole chapter on, on the resurrection, why the resurrection is monumental in the life of a believer. He says, after all this, he says, therefore, verse 58, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, therefore, my, bro- my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. He says, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So I love this. And I, and I, and I love that we have opportunities like we do to help have a couple guys help, help a lady move. Like we do to help this young woman who's hurting. And for us to provide meals for her. And for her to know that there are people in Stillwater that she doesn't even know that are seeking to care for her. And hopefully, that gives us an opportunity to, to share with her why we have hope. In, her, in the midst of her loss, we have hope in, in life after death, in Jesus' return. I mean, that's why we do these things. That's why we get to come together on a Saturday and pound, ham, pound nail, nails in a hammer and build house, two houses for two families in our community to, to, let her, to let them know that we as Christians, we do these things not because um, we think somehow we're earning anything, but because it's a response to who, who we believe Jesus is and who He's called us to be. And so we act. We act. And we, and we, we give ourselves fully to, to these kinds of things. In, in um, I guess, less than a month, there's, a, there's an opportunity to go to Dallas. We have a church, an inner city church that we've been partnering with, Sunnybrook has been, for 20 years. And um, they, they're in need of some projects to be done. And so during fall break, whoever wants to go, we're going to pile in vans and head down there and, and help out and serve and then hang out at night in Dallas. But, but we get an opportunity to let this, this other church know. And we've, we've been doing, like I said, this is a phenomenal relationship we have with this church. But again, it's just a reminder. Um, they need to re- be reminded and we need to be reminded of of the hope we have in Jesus and how that affects how we live here and now. Um, I, this summer uh, has been huge for me as, <clears throat> as a pastor, but, but more than anything, as a, um, as a member of the church. Um, I've probably fallen more in love with the church, uh, and not just Sunnybrook, but, but what God is doing in the church worldwide, and specifically in this family that we call Sunnybrook. Um, and I'm, I'm reminded that as a church, we are to do two things, when we, at least two, two things when we gather together. We're to remind ourselves of two things. And one is the gospel. Um, the story of God. The, the gospel of God. That, that, that God is a creator God, and He's a giving God. And he gave out of an overflow of love. And we took... And we abused, and we used for our own purposes. And all of us, all of us have done that. All of us have taken the things, the good things that God's given us, and, and used them for ourselves. And yet God didn't stop there. He pursued us by coming down 
calling a people to Himself. And out of that people came this Savior, Messiah, King, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, died a perfect death in order to conquer death so that by faith in Him we might um, not only be changed here, but also live eternally with Him. And, and that there's hope in Him, and that there's grace in Him, and that there's forgiveness in Him, and reconciliation in Him. And so like, this is a story, this is the story that we've chosen to live our lives by. And when we gather together as a church, we need to, we need to remind ourselves of, of who Christ is and what He's done, and who we are and now, because of that, how we, how we are to live. Like, that's, that's our story. Because in this world, there are all kinds of stories that are being told, messages that are being told to us that are just false, that are not true. And it's easy to fall into those, and to be convinced of those, and to start wandering and walking that direction. But I'm convinced as a church that we've got we to remind each other of this story that we live by. The other, the other thing that we've got to remind each other of, and this is the thing that, like Drew said, I don't do enough. And... and Honestly, it, it just seems kind of weird sometimes to talk about. But it's to remind each other of Christ's return. Um, because His return will do two things. And so I want to spend the last few moments just talking about those two things. What His return will do. And the first one, uh, we've talked a little bit about, but it's, it's restoring all things. Like, if you've ever had a moment of frustration, of, of um, maybe in yourself, maybe you've had a, a, a Romans 7 moment where, where Paul says, who will rescue me from this body of death? Like you've gotten so frustrated with maybe something that you continue to do or something that um, has happened and, and, and you, you're frustrated. Or if you've ever been frustrated by just difficulty in, in relationships or, 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 or circumstances that are out of your control, like, if you've ever had a moment like that, then, then you, you long for Christ to come and to restore those things. Like, that's what He's going to do. Come, restore things. Romans 8 talks about creation groaning to be restored. It talks about the... Um, Re- Revelation talks about the end of pain and suffering when He comes. It describes us as getting to know Him as He is. Not, not in glimpses, but to truly know Him as He is. That, that's, that will be an amazing thing, his return. That, if that was enough, if that was it, that would be plenty. But the other thing that I'm reminded of that has hit home for me this summer is that his return will mean the end of all other kingdoms. And this is where, when, when Drew was talking about how in the Old Testament, like the coming of Christ was not so much a fun thing. Because... He came waging war against all the other kingdoms of this world. And so if you think about Rome was this, this oppressive power nation that was oppressing Christians. Christians were getting it from both sides. They were getting it from Greek culture, Rome. They were getting it from the Jewish culture. Um, and so they were, they were low on the totem pole. And they were experiencing oppression like, you know, we've never never faced before, never experienced before. They, they had stadiums where they would allow Christians to come in as sport and sick, you know, lions and, and tigers and bears, oh my, but that haven't eaten. 
right? So they, they would starve these animals and put Christians in there and set, them, set these animals free for sport to see how long they could last and cheer and, and, and I mean, crazy stuff happening. So this is a world that first century church was, was in. Uh, first, first, second, third, often. But notice Rome isn't in power anymore. Like, they, they have come and gone. Other nations have come and have into world power and have gone. And right now, we're kind of high on the totem pole. But if, if history proves itself, which it always does, like no nation has ever lasted. No nation has ever stayed in power forever. Like, when's it going to end for us? How's it going to end for us? I don't know. Right now, we're high on the totem pole. And, and when we're high on the totem pole, you're not looking to be rescued from oppression. You're not looking, to be, you're not looking for kingdoms that, that are oppressive to be, uh, to be dealt with by a coming king. But those kingdoms still exist. In fact, um, my kingdom exists. So, so I have a kingdom that I'm building that w- when I'm not tethered to Christ, when I'm not following Him, when, I'm, when I kind of, when I allow myself to, to drift into my own world, I have a kingdom I'm building. You want to hear about my kingdom? Okay, here's my kingdom. My kingdom, in my kingdom, is where, you know, is where my family grows up, is healthy, um, stays close relationally. In fact, all the people that I know and care about, some of which are in this room, not all of you. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But, but seriously, think about it. All the people that I know and care about, I want to grow, to grow old, to be healthy, and to be happy. Everybody else I don't care about, but the people that I know, I want to be healthy and happy. Um, it's, it's where my kids are successful in life, and what that means is they make just enough money to where they don't need me, but, they're, but they're, they're, they make a significant difference in this world enough to where I'm significant because of, because of them. Like, so I can, I can live through them. That's true. Um, my, my, that my wife and I live comfortably and are provided for in, in retirement, just enough to where we can travel and do whatever we want, whenever we want, and, and to where we have enough, enough nice things that we don't look like we're poor. Because that, you know, that wouldn't be cool. I wouldn't want that. Um, it's where my kids need me and, and, and rely on me. Like, do, do you see, I'm, I'm being honest. Like, these are things that I, that when I'm not thinking, those are things that I want. So, like when I think about the good life, those are things that come to my mind. I have a, I have a, I have a son. If, you, if you've ever wondered if this is true, that parents are wacky and um, try to live through their kids, go to a nine-year-old soccer game. Okay? I have a nine-year-old who plays soccer, and I get to, I get to do this all the time. And it's always fun to watch, walk up to, a, to watch a team, two teams play that I don't know, right? And just listen to the parents. And I've been starting to do this with my wife and others. Okay, just listen to them. That's what we sound like. It's crazy. I mean, it, it is crazy. Because it's nine-year-old soccer, and every play is like the Super Bowl. Um, 
And every time a, a bad call happens, we've, we've got to let the ref know. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's insane. And so I have this nine-year-old kid, and, and he is athletic, and I, I can easily think of myself as, what would happen if he became, right? And so I'm not thinking about him. I'm thinking about me. I'm thinking about I would be the dad of the kid who, right? That's the way this works. That's what your parents think about you. Um, it's true that they want you to be successful. And sometimes I wonder, is it because, one, is it because they want you to be successful so God receives glory? Is it because they want you to be successful just so you can be happy? Or is it because they want you to be successful so that they can be the, the parents of the kid who's successful? I mean, that's a real struggle for parents. Trust me, it'll happen someday. So what, what, what kingdom are you building? When you, when you envision the good life, what that will be, what, what is that for you? That's a question worth thinking about. And I would, I would imagine that you're, you're kind of early on. Some of you don't even know what classes you're going to be taking next semester, um, let alone what, you know, you don't know who you're going to marry, you don't know what career you're going to be doing, you're changing your majors, you know, five times um, this year. And, and so you don't, you don't know, but, but I promise you, the further you get into your life, like you, you have a vision about life. You, you will. <clears throat> and this is why we need the church. To remind ourselves of the gospel, the story in which we live our lives, and to remind ourselves of the coming king who's coming to demolish kingdoms. My kingdom and your kingdom. And any kingdom that sets itself up against Christ, any kingdom that isn't focused on His glory and His righteousness, like, like Matthew 6.33, um, any, any kingdom that sets itself up against, against Christ and His kingdom and what God is doing in this world, Jesus returning puts an end to all of that. And, and for that, we can praise God. And, and honestly, for that, we need to... Um, change our mind about the things we want out of this world. And there's no better picture. See, see this is why we need, we need a revelation. We need a picture um, so, that it, so that it gives us a sharp um, contrast to, what, to our, our life. And in the book of Revelation, um, John receives this picture. And I want to close just by reading some from John. Sorry about the animals. Um, here, let's, let's, get the, let's get this back on. Um, nope. Did I lose it? It's okay. The lion will lay down with the lamb. The lion and the lamb. We're about to read about that. So, so for those of you maybe new and, and, and for maybe for a lot of you, Revelation is kind of a weird book. Like it's a little strange. I don't quite understand it. it there's all this imagery um, there's this weird language. It, comes, it just comes at us kind of strange. And the reason it comes at us strange is because we're not low on the totem pole. We're not being fed to lions. We're not being oppressed by a, a, a monster of a nation like Rome. That's the reason we don't get Revelation. And because we don't know the Old Testament. But that's another story. Um, and so Revelation comes to us um, 
from John has this vision. John is the only apostle, only apostle, disciple, whatever, one of Jesus' twelve, the only one who wasn't um, killed for his faith. He was actually put on put in prison in the island of Patmos. So it's year 80, 95, and he's in prison, and he has a vision, and he writes it all down. And Jesus tells him to send it to these seven churches um, because Jesus wants to help them see a very vivid picture of who he is. Okay? So now that you know their context of, of oppression and, and all kinds of bad things that are happening to them that you and I can't imagine, see if his, if the, his description um, does anything, helps you understand a little more. Starting in chapter 1, verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are, in, that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Okay, so that's Jesus showing up on the scene. Why does he show up looking like that? What's the picture that's being painted? Glory. What? Glory. Glory. Power. Power. Honor. Honor. <laughs> Conqueror. Conqueror. He's got, a, he's got a sword come out of his mouth. Right? His face is on fire. His, yeah, he's a, he, he's, his, his, his voice sounds like the roar of rushing water. Like, so when we have pictures of Jesus holding lambs, right? And things, and blonde hair, kissing babies, kissing babies blue eyes, inevitably. Scan, he's Scandinavian in these pictures. But, so like, like, it doesn't do it justice. Like, Jesus is a real king coming to bring an end to all other kingdoms that are oppressive and, and, and wicked. And he's coming with hope. And so listen, listen to what he says. When I saw him, listen, listen to what John says, I love this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever. 
I have the keys of death and Hades. Okay? Now, jump over to verse, or sorry, chapter 5. Chapter 5. He goes on, he, he tells, gives instructions to the, the seven churches. Chapter 4 is, is this vision John has of God is sitting on the throne. And when God's on the throne, everything else is as calm as, as glass. There's no chaos. Everything's in order. God, God is seated and in control. And then verse, or sorry, chapter 5. And then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So in other words, let me explain. This, this, this seal, this, um, this scroll, had within it the judgment that was coming to all these powers, to, to Rome, to all these things that stood against God and that were oppressing and, and wicked things. And it, and it held within it judgment. And only the perfect one, only one could open it and release this judgment. And so that's what he's asking. Who's worthy to open this? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of, De of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And, be and between the throne and the four uh, living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language, people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and, a pri and priests to our God, and they shall reign on, on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the, the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down in worship. 
Like that's this picture that 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 John. Um, that's his vision, this revelation that John receives and paints for these seven churches who desperately need needed to know that Jesus wasn't just going to come back and give them a big hug. Okay, as much as they loved Jesus and as much as they would love a hug from him, what they needed was a king to come and put an end to the kingdoms that were destroying um, the things of God. And, and, and you and I need to be reminded of His return. We just do. It, it reminds us of the hope we have in Him to restore all things. It reminds us that, yeah, He's coming. And, and when He comes, it's a very real thing. And so it reminds me, I've, I've got to get my stuff in order. I've got to be ready. I've got to give myself fully to the work of the Lord. Because there's a lot to do. And I need to have a patient urgency, a patience that recognizes God is in control. God's the one that opens the doors. God's the one that makes any sort of eternal difference in someone's life through my efforts. But it's also an urgency that says there is a lot at stake. And you have friends and neighbors and, and co-workers and classmates and roommates um, that don't know Him and, and aren't giving their life to Him. And He deserves that. He deserves their worship. So it gives us a lot to think about. So I want to give just a few minutes, uh, and then I want to close in prayer. So take a few minutes. That help us to have a perspective on our life that recognizes your return and that recognizes the, the opportunities we have um, to represent you well, to represent you and to carry out the responsibilities that you've given us as we stay in relationship with you. And God, help us to, to remember your return, to be aware of it, God, may, may we talk about it and think about it 
And God, may it move us to, to love you well and to love those you've put in our life. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.